Hello and welcome to Horus Heretics, a Warhammer book club where we treat Warhammer 40k books as if they were real literature. I'm one of your hosts, Neil McComb. And I'm your other host, William Hepburn. Uh, so, well, let's talk a little bit about why we are doing a podcast on 40k books, uh, the, the books in particular <coughs> produced by Black Library. Um, I thought it'd be useful for us to give a little bit of our history of how we got into Warhammer and how far into Warhammer we actually are. Um, so I'll I'll start. I think okay. um, I, in school we used to have a like a role playing cl- club that met at lunchtime, and a bunch of people went there and played Blood Bowl and stuff like that. Um, I didn't play any of the games, uh, but what I did do was just read White Dwarf magazine and look at the pictures. And uh, I really loved the, the you know, the, the miniatures and the, the play sets that people use. And a load of the art as well. Um, and I've played like a bunch of the video games. Um, and then started reading Black Library book, which I think you got me into. Because uh, you gave me one of the books uh, and told me a little bit about the background of what the Horus Heresy was. Right, right. Um, and I think I just loved the bad dialogue <laughs> and the um the craziness of it all i wonder like we, we were medieval history students and that's how we met this was a long time ago and basically medieval history is a study of like religion politics and warfare yeah and that's what these books kind of are yeah but with like an overblown rhetoric which I both love and hate. Yeah, if you know what I mean. I mean, it is a, it is definitely a, a heavily sort of medieval Gothic tinged future that is being described in the books for sure. And yeah, I suppose my background with forty k is not completely different than what you've just described. But I just I remember in terms of Games Workshop stuff in general, um, there was one in Aberdeen, the town where I grew up, and I remember sort of first coming into contact with that. Uh, as far as I can remember, anyway, through they used to give out these little kind of brochures of like the models you could get, and I I just treasured that actual brochure and like poured over the images and of all these massive armies of sci-fi and fantasy models fighting each other, um, and then eventually I sort of got into. It. I would say I'm now kind of I'm now in my kind of. Uh, third wave of Games Workshop fandom um, from <laughs> from when I was... Heaven! <laughs> when I was a kid, um, I acquired some of the miniatures and then I think like a lot of people entering into uh, adolescence, I didn't think this was going to help me socially to be into this. So, so I abandoned <laughs> it for a while until about my mid-20s and then some of the other people that um, had been into it in their youth started sort of getting back into it now that... And this is around the time these books first came out, um, and I started reading some of them back then. And then just in the last uh, couple of years, I've bought a couple of... Um, I'm into board games a lot now, so not really miniatures games per se, which is most of what Games Workshop do, but um, uh, I like board games, and they've started doing more board games recently, so I have bought some more stuff. And um, yeah, I'd kind of given up on the Horus Heresy books for reasons that will probably covering greater detail but um it feels good to be returning uh, now cool so i think maybe it might be wise for us to give a disclaimer a disclaimer of sorts let's say that uh, you're up in aberdeen I, I live in london now but whenever we meet up we always seem to end up talking about about these books and laughing at them like and and that is kind of how this podcast was born and I'm sure we're going to be doing a lot of that. Um, 
as we talk about them. But we do it from a place of love. You know, we wouldn't we wouldn't be reading them if we didn't like them. I think the universe is just straight up fascinating. Like you could tell so many interesting stories in it, uh, but it's crazy. Yeah. And the the way the books are written is are ridiculous. <laughs> and I think like I think not laughing at these books is missing a huge portion of the 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 joy of the book. Yeah. I, they're meant to be funny <laughs> they are funny um but also we're not we're not expert and this area these areas of sci-fi attract fans who love to get deep and know everything that there is to will will you know get stuff wrong and, and say things that are incorrect <laughs> uh so anybody who listens who knows more about this than us you know well done <laughs> you're better than us but uh but you know we don't need to know we don't need to know everything that we got wrong where we, we would love to get other people interested who haven't read any of these and we would love to reach some of them as well so hopefully we can you know find a middle ground between super fans and people who don't know anything which i think is probably a way for us to start if we talk the book like just gets straight into it uh and doesn't really allow for anyone who isn't familiar with the universe so perhaps uh will do you want to uh, explain a little bit about what the warhammer 40k universe is and what the imperium of is yeah um i mean i suppose the the warhammer 40k universe is best summed up uh the way that it is on the front of the boxed game uh when they say in the grim darkness of the far future there is only war um so they, they've created a kind of world in which they're, they're, the games that they sell takes place is basically a sort of intergalactic constant state of warfare between uh, humans who, who as a faction will go into a lot more detail on but also things like orcs elder, chaos um, all these factions who you can buy armies of and that's the kind of the modern day Warhammer uh, 40k universe which as I understand it and this is not something I really know about. They've they've moved that timeline forward a bit in their latest edition of the game. But what we're going back to here is is the prehistory of this world about ten thousand years ago, when the world as it's set for the game later on is sort of coming into being. This is the sort of almost mythological sort of history behind it. At the heart of that is the emperor and the expanding imperium, whose elite warriors are the Astartes or Space Marines. The the emperor is the the leader of the Imperium of Man. He is he is a man. He is a human being, but basically a god. He um, is a, a massively powerful psychic, uh, massively strong, massively clever. He knows pretty much everything, and he has created uh, beings that he calls his sons, essentially called Primarchs. And he has given them armies of these genetically improved humans. The normal humans, the uh, the grunts, you know, the they are essentially us. They are uh, not special. They are weak. They are prone to all the fears and weaknesses of uh, all humans. It's a big sci-fi space opera. The Horus Heresy, which is the series of books that we're talking about, is basically the ongoing major schismatic event that happened at this time in the where, where it picks up in Horus Rising in terms of that wider narrative is um, at the start of the, the story basically they, we're in the middle of a, a crusade that's been carried out uh, by the Emperor and his forces and um, this is sort of you're given some some of the picture of the sort of backstory of humanity up to this point 
and basically the earth is unified under the emperor. He's been leading this great crusade where they've basically been expanding out into the universe, trying to get all humans they find, because humans have gone out into set up civilizations in other parts of space, find all of them and basically either make them accept the emperor's rule or destroy them, um, destroying any alien civilizations they come across. But it's reached a point where the, the emperor has to go home uh, and he's basically handed over leadership of this crusade to one of his primarchs, uh, Horus, who is appointed as the war master, the leader of the crusade. And it's, it's soon after that point that the story picks up. Yeah, we should have said this earlier on, but we will be reading uh, book one, Horse Rising by Dan Abnett. And I think we'll be splitting it up into multiple podcasts because there is a lot to talk about and a lot of bad dialogue <laughs> that we're going to want to really pick apart and spend a bit of time laughing at. So, so it kind of starts in Media Res where uh, the Legion discover what is known as the Empire. This is a, a, a fairly on the nose, <laughs> a mirror in every way of their own empire. Okay. okay. Right. Are you gonna, do you want to go into more details of what happens in the story here before? Because I have something to say about this. But Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, let's, let's, yeah, let's try and get past the first line of the book. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, jump in at any time. Okay. But, um, yeah, so w- we get a sort of introduction to a number of important characters who will be coming up throughout the book. One is, oh, this is going to be interesting. I've never pronounced these names before. <laughs> so, so, so we've got Ezekiel Abaddon. What do you think about that? Yeah, is that how you, it is in your I'd head? I'd probably say Abaddon, but Abaddon's absolutely Abaddon. fine. I think that's, um, yeah, I think that's cool. Okay, so he is the first captain of the Luna Wolves. That's the name of the, the legion that, that Horus is the Primarch of. He is a, a proud but angry, tempestuous man. We hear about Sejanus. He is basically the perfect knight. Everyone talks about him in awe. And then we are also introduced to Garviel Loken, who is the protagonist. Um, not a huge amount of character characterization to this point, but um, those are the main characters. Shall we talk a little bit more about this empire? Basically, the empire, this empire, this sort of fake empire they found, it's a, it's a sort of illustration of what's happened to these human um, civilizations that are out there in the galaxy, don't know about what they see as the true empire, and in this case, have set up something that sort of uses all the same terminology, and it's the same kind of structure, but obviously from the point of view of the Astartes and the Crusade, this is false and must be destroyed and um well it didn't necessarily need to be destroyed they might have just peacefully accepted the you know the true emperor but um they didn't as it turned out and they killed uh Sejanus, um who, when he was on an embassy and they are all very angry about this and uh they send down their forces this is where i want to bring up a quote this is where <laughs> I've, I've i've written down some of the dialogue the Sejanus has been killed by this group of elite warriors known as um, the Invisible, uh, while he was sort of uh, acting as the embassy from the Legion. And the uh, Astartes, very, very mad. They're terribly upset by this. And so they land on the planet, start killing it. Um, Loken, uh, the protagonist, and his his friend, Nero, uh, are in a conversation. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just quote from the book. I'm not going to editorialize here at all. This is their conversation. Should, should, we, not, he says, should we not actually do the conversation? Um, okay, it's very short. I'll be Loken, the hero. Okay. You can be Nero. He's a bit of a weedy arsehole, isn't he? <laughs> like, 
<laughs> like he has really like these are all space fascists so there's no nothing good about any of them but Nero is a real pathetic weed like so you be him um, um, how's your humour captain phlegmatic Nero you <laughs> call Eric <laughs> <laughs> right so we've got in the space of two lines we've got somebody describing their humor as phlegmatic and the other one going oh really well mine's choleric <laughs> and you're just like like these books spend a lot of time going into descriptions of the alien later on in, in these books there are all kinds of alien races we've got uh, robot horses we've got We've got uh, silver insects that that kill people with trees. And we've got, like, th- there's a really cool race that's just mentioned of, like, uh, it's a, a robotic species that does nothing but spend its existence uh, in the maintenance of these beautiful mosaics that have been left over from past species. And I was like, that sounds fascinating. Give me more of that. So they describe the alien all the time and it's pretty good at it but that conversation is more alien to me than any multi-headed insect monster like i just can't uh, what we're going to do is we're going to keep a glossary of terms that only appear in these books phlegmatic appears in this book i tried to do a kind and literally like forgot where i was i tried to do a count of phlegmatics uh, and yeah, th- there was too many to kind. Do you know these words for the humor is like I can never remember which one is which, right? I, I always just I always think they all mean angry, right? Like when I just see them in isolation, and I'm having to work yeah. out uh, what actually are they again. But um, I suppose it's, it's like t- to your point earlier on about th- there being a kind of medieval aspect to this world, like that sort of seems to be what they're going at here, going for here. You know, it's just kind of um, just the um, otherness of the way that they describe their moods using, you know, what was a pre-modern uh, medical terms like phlegmatic and choleric and all that. And it seems to me to, to be a little bit of colour in that um, attempt to give a sort of archaic sense to this futuristic world, if you know what I mean. This Just just to briefly dwell on this thing about the, the fake empire, the false empire they come across at the start of the book. Two things about that. It's, so obviously that's pitched immediately, like you said, people that already basically know the story that they're about to tell over the course of 60 or 70 books. And it sort of tells you everything about how these books were originally pitched. It starts with basically a joke about how things are going to end up, which is not surprising, I suppose, when you're looking at a set of books that was pitched as sort of prehistory to a, to a, a, a sci-fi setting. You're kind of expecting that that's going to be a particular fan base who's going to pick up on that but um it's also actually quite confusing when you first read it um even sort of knowing that like it's quite confusing when you're uh for the first couple of pages you know if, if you're coming into this totally yes yeah i had the same thing yeah and i even sort of know about the background but if you were coming to this totally from a standing start it would be pretty confusing to read that first chapter it's badly written yeah. <laughs> there, that's a spoiler <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not badly written. It's that was a facetious joke that I should be ashamed of. Um, yeah, so there is a quote comes up later, still in the first chapter here, and it it just gives a, a really good overview of what the empire is. And I think it's 
it comes from Loki. But it, it is uh, how blind these people are, how sad this is. One day with the iterators and they would understand. We are not the enemy. We are the same and we bring with us a glorious message of redemption. Old night is done. Man walks the stars again and the might of the Astartes walks at his side to keep him safe. And like there's so much in that. They're, they are bringing a gift. <coughs> they are bringing this this knowledge and it's frustrating to them it's sad why can't other people just see it they're not the enemy they bring this message and it's it's redemption because you might not have known it but you've fallen from grace uh, whatever way of life you have whatever culture you have is sinful but come with us and we'll sort you out and then it goes the astartes walk at mankind's side and keep him safe the military it's not here to keep anyone in their position it's not here to uh, enforce anything it's here as a defense because we live in a really dangerous universe and uh, the military will defend you thank thank them thank the forces of government um and it's it's just it's an interesting starting point i think to talk about the fascism of this, uh, the explicit fascism like it, it's i'm not saying like these are fascist books I'm saying these are books about fascists. Yeah, and what I always find always quite interesting about that is, as with many things in these books, is there's a really rich set of references to that type of thing in these books um, that could be the uh, the basis for something satirical or political. But that's just definitely not what these books are. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they are neither... They're certainly not uh, advocating any kind of fascism in relation to the real world. At least I don't think so. Um, and uh, at the same time, they're not satirical. I mean, you, you can't in any way really... Occasionally, there's quite a clumsy sort of attempt to do that. But for the most part, uh, you know, there's just not really a... There's not any kind of authorial commentary in any of that, really, is there? It's just kind of... No, no, <laughs> I suppose not. But the world is terrible for pretty much everyone. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. So, so I guess it is saying that, like, because every, like, every species in its way is its own form of fascism. It's that kind of like weird thing that sci-fi has is that at some point the species will come together and only think one thing. Yeah. So the humans will think one thing, and the aliens will think another thing. But in their own way, they will be space fascists too. And the Tau over here, that's another species. And the orcs, like, there is no other form of government uh, apart from militarized like enforcement of, of orthodoxy. And it's just a, it's a strange book. It's a strange series of books to read because they involve like one person you hate fighting another person you hate. And you're just left like choosing the the lesser of two evils like you don't root for anyone in these books because they're all terrible and it's just such a strange way to write i think yeah i mean it's kind of like th those sorts of things in the books you almost don't engage with them in the sense of deciding who as you read is good or bad or who you're rooting for because that's just sort of a, a constant like you say a permanent it's it's in the fabric of the entire setting and um there's you know as we'll see as we go and discuss the book there is a Agree to which people within, say, one Space Marine uh, Startes chapter might be um, sort of good or bad as we would uh, judge them as readers um, in, in how kind of, um, I don't know, merciful they are or, or whatever. But um, <clears throat> basically the whole drama of the story isn't kind of, it's definitely not a contest between this kind of fascist political system and something else. That is just kind of like you say, 
No, the, the fa- fascism has won, <laughs> and um, and people, the the people we hear about are true believers. The Astartes are basically space Romans. They're fa- they're that kind of fascist. <laughs> Do you know what? Um, it's a weird one because that undoubtedly is written into the whole setting, and obviously the whole enterprise they're on is a big, you know, imperialistic venture and a really violent one at that, and um, where there's no qualms about you know wiping out cultures and replacing them with their own and doing so through force and all that stuff. Um, but in many ways, like the books actually don't, I don't know, you know, don't concern themselves with, um, I mean, they do and they don't concern themselves with the kind of mechanics of how a kind of totalitarian fascist society or state might actually work. You know, I, I just don't know if the, the books just aren't, you know, don't go into that kind of level of actually understanding people's experience. And you're often actually dealing with these kind of superhuman warriors are, are most of the main characters. And like the, the the normal humans that you do see, they don't oftentimes you, you don't get the sense that they've grown up in a, a society where freedoms are are, are limited and and and, and uh, prescribed uh, harshly and all this. It's just, uh, but I don't think that's necessarily again, I don't think that's a deliberate decision one way or other. I just don't think that's been. You're right. We don't we don't hear about or from the people we we hear about the Astartes and we hear about the Mournival and um, people that are high up that are in positions of power but just around the edges um, I think you do get an impression of how this doesn't work Um, and I'll I'll flag those up as we come the Space Marines are fighting their way towards the Imperial Palace on this uh, planet that they've just landed on Um, and we we there is a, a, a weird con- um, conference between Abaddon and Loken. And, like, Loken is a captain, so he's not, like, he's not a nobody. But it's he is, like, a real embarrassing rube <laughs> whenever they, they have this, like, conversation. And he's like, oh, oh, Ezekiel, oh, Ezekiel, he, he talked to me. He, it, it was, like, embarrassing reading it. You're just like, mate, what are you doing? And like it was so, it was so important to him. Like he was thrilled. He was like a little child that he went to Nero and told him that, like, yo, Abaddon just spoke to me and he made a joke and he used my name and it was, oh, it was the best day of my life. And Nero recognizes it for what it is as like, oh, whoa, he give you this high honor. You're totally moving up in. That. And it's, I think it's just like it's the first glimpse we get of the structure of a legion beyond the sort of chain of command that there is a nepotistic um structure to things that knowing people and being on a first name terms people and making jokes uh that's important that will further your career more than your experiences of battle and again it's just uh it's like the cult of personality in a lot of fascist government. The the people at the top of the organization will find ways to bind other people at the top of the organization together with favoritism and with gifts and with all this uh, other kinds of things to like bring everyone together. Yo, you know how powerful I am. I'm going to speak to you. I'm going to be seen with you. I'm going to let you use my first name, which is what happens uh, later on. And these like subtle signs of of gratuity and of status um, are super important, and it, like it it raises people up from lower levels, but it binds them to the people at the top, so that you can ask them to do something, and they're like, oh whoa, I I got to do this for him because this will further me, and it like it it's sort of it's it's that kind of cultish behaviour which can allow 
atrocities because you go so far and then you're asked to do something that you're not comfortable with but you know you've gone that far already why can you why would you say no to this and so it just it's it's a kind of boring mechanized structure to a, a government that can allow um just really bad shit to happen i mean i think i i see what you're getting at there um but I again, I think this just sort of points to a problem that speaks right where you've got like you know, so you've got these space marines who are, as we're told, they're superhuman, genetically enhanced superhuman who have been bred for this basically one purpose of war to be these elite warriors who are, as as is made very clear throughout these books, can brutally destroy most enemies that come into their path, right? So, and unlike to the language around how these people interact, a lot of it's obviously based on kind of presume, you know, reading about, I presume Dan Abnett's read a lot of uh, military history or, you know, sharp novels or whatever, about <laughs> to try to get a, <laughs> an impression of how people um, talk to each other, you know, how military types talk to each other and what makes them feel great. And like, <clears throat> I think that's part of the problem. You've got this really interesting setup or potentially interesting setup of this. People that are totally, not only conditioned, um, but actually bred genetically for war. So their whole existence is for war. And then you've got a book that has to try to write them as if they were like essentially normal human beings as well. And like just it's like slightly jars for me, you know, and I think we'll get onto that a bit later when we, <laughs> when you see attempts to sort of show the kind of banter between the different members of the, and it just, <laughs> oh yeah. But I, it's, it's bad, but it's sort of, it's sort of charming because, as you say, they're bred. They're bred to be bad conversationalists, and like they're on a they're on a uh, a ship, you know, spending weeks in space with only others of their like-minded, boring space marines. And you're just like, it's it's tough for them. They got to have a joke, but they're all just terrible at it. So it's kind of I don't know. It's just kind of nice to, to sort of to see it represented through bad dialogue as well. I kind of I it's yeah, I kind of would have liked everyone to just be like really po faced throughout the whole book. I feel that would have that would have like sat better with the the uh, the the setting, but it's, it is quite funny uh, nonetheless. To finish up this chapter, they enter the palace and there's a really shit scene with a turret. Like any video game, the bit with the turret is really boring. <laughs> they walk in, and a bunch of them get shot to ribbons by a turret. Fine, that that'll happen. It happens to everyone. Um, but they 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 don't know how to defeat it. Like they're throwing grenades. They just don't know how to defeat this clever turret. Um, so in strides uh, Loken, who like I think he throws a stone to distract it, and as it's as it's distracted shooting at the stone he runs up to it and punches it and i was like is seriously is that it and then nero strides up and i basically pats him on the back for his martial prior and it's just like what uh, okay okay like i've played i've played some halo i'm not an astartes i'm not genetically modified but i've played some halo <laughs> and i i know how to do that um so what happens then the uh or we just are we? We're now on a chapter two, right? Yeah, chapter two, where um, Loken is meeting with uh, a remembrancer. Oh yeah, so the remember uh, the remembrancers are uh, kind of like almost in a way like the hobbits of this book, aren't they? In the sense of being <laughs> like the the ones that are kind of meant to give you a sort of in as a normal modern human being into this like high fantasy, or in this case, high 
science fiction universe would you say that like they're totally. they're kind of meant to be relatable and it's really and and the the, the remembrancers the basic idea behind them is they've been controversially amongst the space marines the astartes they've been invited uh to come on the great crusade to kind of record all the great deeds and um heroic battles and so forth that they do um, they're the historians yeah they're historians but they're also like they're basically just uh as a group, they are, you know, artists, creators who are like some of them are poets. Their, their function is as the historians, the chroniclers of the events. But they are some of them are writers, some of them are photographers, some of them are uh, painters, and, and so on. And what's quite funny is, is is that they kind of a lot of their characteristics are kind of governed by sort of cliches of artistic types. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh my God! It's it it is. It's bad. It's bad. I'm afraid. Like Dan, I, I like Dan Abner, uh, but this is bad. Like one of them, uh, I think he he appears later. Uh, what is it? Car- Carcassy. Oh yeah. He he's he's the poet, I think. Yeah. And um, he he's lounging on a chaise long. He's <laughs> complaining uh, that the wine that he's drinking in space is a bad vintage, <laughs> <laughs> and he's he's complaining that the these superhuman warriors smell (laughs) just like oh my god come on like that i guess that's just a sort of uh, preparation for everyone that if there is a cliche to be described in these books everyone will be plundered for everything that that it has to offer um i was just like come on like it's such a I, it's such an interesting idea to have these remember to have these like mixed media historians come along. I want I want more stories about them. That it's it's a fascinating idea, and I want more real stories about them. And it's quite funny later on in the book you learn that the remembrancers eventually kind of commandeer a section of the ship just as, as a kind of like round the clock party basically where they just they just like drink and like hang out in a kind of um... those are the best bits of the book <laughs> whenever there are human beings around they are the best bits of the book um there's a a, a chapter uh later on where that that same guy carcassy is down on the planet and uh he goes looking for you know the people of that world the defeated people and experiences a bit of their culture i think that's my favorite bit of the book um, but we're getting ahead of us. But it's at this point where they uh, Loken tells the tale of his heroism down on the planet. So he's talking to Olaton and he relates that that's where they met the Invisibles. So going back a little bit, when Sejanus was killed, he was killed by a group known as the Invisibles. That's basically all they know. Um, but that tells you quite a lot. They're called the Invisible. They didn't even pick up on that. <laughs> <laughs> like, and these these Invisibles are at least good enough to kill the perfect knight, Sejanus. So they're entering the palace of the Emperor. They know that there are a group called the Invisible. And they walk in and basically all of Loken's men get shot to pieces immediately. And, and Loken uses the term, we were caught totally off guard. <laughs> and, he does come across as more sympathetic than most of the characters, simply because the like this, you know, his adherence to just going on planets and blowing the shit out of everything is just sort of treated as a, you know, taken for granted. That's a given. And then, but on top of that, he's quite nice to the humans and stuff. And he's, uh, you know, read the poems written by some of these remembrancers and and so on. So Loken, after 
after defeating the Invisibles, they're actually not all that tough shit. They're just invisible. Uh, he climbs one of the, the major towers in uh, the city and he finds who he thinks is the Emperor, who's like full of defiance. And they have a bit of a conversation and they find that they both agree about the primacy of mankind. Um, essentially, what they disagree on is who should be the leader. And that's essentially it. Um, and, yeah, I agree. These bits are generally quite boring, these kind of discussions in the book. Could be really interesting, but usually aren't, and kind of have the vibe of sort of um, high school level chats about like political, political philosophy and, um, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? It's just like... Yeah. After this, you know, high-minded but dull conversation, the emperor is just like, oh, why did you have to come here? Why couldn't you just have moved past us? We're humans. Why couldn't you just have, like, left us alone? And that, that is, you know, that is a good point. Like, what, what threat do these humans pose living outside the boundary of the Imperium of Man? Naturally, this completely floors Loki. <laughs> like, he's not, not even, he's not thought about this at all. This is a new school of thought to him. So the Emperor basically says, I'll surrender, but only to your commander. At which point, some ships are sent down from, from orbit and they are blasted out of the sky. And the Emperor goes ah it was a trap it was a cunning double cross uh, one i point out again loken did not see loken kills him and turns out he wasn't the emperor he was just someone the emperor is invisible because remember they have invisible technology he's sitting in the throne presses a button or something and the it just starts like a big hurricane in the room uh, all kinds of space marines flying everywhere lots of damage and that's basically it for that weapon uh, Horus somehow knows what's going on. Uh, did I miss that? Did I miss something? How Horus knew? What was I, can't, I can't remember, but basically he appears is the important thing. He appears. He says he says something really dumb. <laughs> I can't remember. It was something uh, pompous and portentous like uh, so end all so end all traitors of mankind. Something, something like that. Uh, as he shoots him, <laughs> as he sh- as he as he shoots him, bam, he's dead. Um, and um, did you did you come up with like any any opinion of him? I thought he was a complete prick. Like, and basically every time he appears in the book, I think every time, um, I've got notes on why he is a prick in that scene. <laughs> uh, I I hate him. I can't say I really had strong views towards chorus one way or the other because like you just wait and you're like right so is he bad yet is he bad yet you're just kind of waiting for like that to happen um and he's and kind of they're all bad so you're like well um yeah what what, what, what are we to take as a sign of like corruption within the context of this horrible universe that we've been talking about but i, I was just kind of watching it for that at all and i can't like yeah, when you say that, it just makes you think I can't really warm to or not warm to basically any of the characters in this for the most part. Um, yeah, I, I, I can understand that, certainly in terms of the Astartes, because they, I mean, as genetic clones, they're basically character clones in these. Like, the, it is pretty difficult in most of these books to separate out um, one Astartes from another, I find. Um, I think the Mournival actually are very well differentiated that's the um we'll we'll meet them coming up soon but it's the sort of the top ranking astarte they are i think well written their chat is bad you're right the chat is bad 
but at least they sound like different people, and that can't always be said about these characters. Do you want to take us into the... Oh, well, you know, let's take a minute to talk about Horus. Um, I think this is probably... This probably illustrates a point, is that his name is Horus Lupercal, which is a terrible name. So Horus is the... He's the Egyptian god of protector of Egypt, right? Lupercal is the cave where Romulus and Remus were suckled by the wolf before the founding of Rome. Um, and uh, there's all, all all other kinds of references to sort of mythology and historical reference. So Romulus killed Remus. So that's a brother killing brother. Horus defends uh, Egypt. So he's the defender of an empire. So like th- there are these references, but I can't find any overarching thread that binds them together apart from like let's just read all of these cultures myths and build something out of it. yeah that's what these books are about isn't it yeah it's like it's a kind of yeah um yeah i know what you mean there's no sort of overall scheme or like smart way of putting this together it's just kind of like give something the sense of um sense of import you know importance is and they sort of directly do this not just in, in, in sort of referential sense but they you know they, they talk about the early they sort of use slightly changed versions of uh, real places and stuff like that to depict the earlier yeah. history of mankind um so yeah i know what you mean it's sort of to give this sense of sense of something behind things that but isn't it's, really it's there. so superficial yeah yeah it's, yeah, yeah, it's- horus appears and uh, you've just talked about um, some of the references that are being made in, in his name, but uh, the way he's described, and I think this is a sort of genre of writing that we'll keep coming back to in these books. So, it's, <clears throat> so he comes in by some sort of teleport, and it says, incohate light, green and dazzling, sputtered into being on the platform. Um, and it basically it dies, and it says it reveals a god standing on the edge of the platform. And it says, the god was a true giant, as large again to any Astartes warrior as an Astartes was to a normal man. His armor was white gold, like the sunlight at dawn, the work of master artificers. Um, many symbols covered its surfaces, the chief of which was the motif of a single staring eye fashioned across the breastplate. Robes of white cloth fluttered out behind the terrible haloed figure. Above the breastplate, the face was bare, grimacing, perfect in every dimension and detail, suffused in radiance. <laughs> So beautiful. So very beautiful. <laughs> um, I think, like, it is in my notes that um, I want to talk about how gay these books are. <laughs> like, like, every every scene where an Astartes trains with another Astartes in, like, a battle pit or oh, something. Oh, the tops are off, yeah. <laughs> oh, the tops are off. They're sweating. They're practically rubbing each other's muscles. It's... It's the gayest thing in the world, and um, it's really funny. It's really like, oh, I just um, th- I enjoy those scenes immensely because um, I treat them. I don't think they're meant to be treated as metaphors, but I treat them as metaphors. Where it's just like I'm going round to Garvey's <laughs> room later on tonight. We're having a, spar- a sparring <laughs> you know, session. Yeah, it's a sparring session. Do you want to come? More the merrier. <laughs> but you know these these Astartes. They're basically sailors. They're on a they're on a boat. They're alone with other sailors. Presumably, they still have the ability to have sex. Presumably, that wasn't removed. It would be a pretty weird genetic of that. Yeah, they got to do something. I'd be curious to know across the whole Horus Heresy series if there are any references to penises at all. 
that's actually, you know, we gave that disclaimer at the start, but I'm willing to waive that <laughs> on behalf of it. If anyone knows whether um, the dicks fly, you know, if there are, if there are any dicks um, on an Astartes, I want to know. I, I want to know. It's imp- it's important. But like, why? Why they all started out as human beings? So unless they removed it, think about that decision. Think about that one. The Astartes are designed by the Emperor, so that's an imperial decision. The the Emperor gathers together his geneticists and says, "No, get rid of the dicks." <laughs> <laughs> they're like but why would we do that no just get rid of him i don't want him it's it's it's, it's let's just say it's a subject that's not really addressed <laughs> perhaps we'll find a metaphor somewhere perhaps we'll be able to strain a metaphor somewhere to be able to explain um what happens in the dead of night but what like that description of horus what like it, it it's it, it just makes me think of a lot of descriptions in these books where they're having to make out Describe to you how grandiose and amazing some site is, and it's just kind of weighs it on thick with that kind of language. <laughs> then it's like, I love that kind of language. I love it. Like we're ripping on it, but I want more of that. I want more of that high flown, pompous bullshit. That's like, that's that's why I read. That's these what things. they're all about. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me laugh. Um, yeah, but that's like. But I just mean sometimes it's like they get into a sort of. Superlative arms race with themselves of like how to <laughs> describe all these amazing beings and like these uh, beings that are amazing to other beings being amazed by yet more amazing beings and like going on. Yeah. About, like, it's just quite entertaining um, how they try to differentiate between just how uh, how godlike and amazing these. Uh, I I like to think of the um, this arms race taking place between the authors too <laughs> yeah. like the, the like i think I, I i don't think this is real but i like to think it is that all the other authors are like form a um a whatsapp group and um they're just like have you heard have you heard this line by dan abnett in his latest <laughs> like, no 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 what is it he's used the term phlegmatic <laughs> and choleric in in a single conversation on in one line and they all just go Oh my God, he's he's the best of all of us. He's the master. How will we how will we dethrone the master? And then they just get into an arms race as the books go on and on and on. They just get more ridiculous, which is why I like them. Remember, um, and just the most pompous language coming out of people. Well, it would be quite funny if, like, because I noticed just looking, I was looking through a kind of list of the novels in the series earlier on, and I was noticing that like some legions seem to be associated with certain. Sorry, legions is that is that it's a legion is like a chapter. A, a, a le- yeah, chapters are smaller than legions. Right. So a legion is like the lunar wolves. The lunar yeah. wolves. Okay, so let that sink in. The lunar wolves. <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, but go no, ahead. I noticed that some authors seem to be associated with particular legions. Right. It'd be quite funny if like the salamanders were associated with somebody called Nick Kimes. Right. So if Dan's like. <laughs> he wants to he, he's having a falling out with Nick and he's like I'm going to shit all over the salamanders and my <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what that salamander hero is not long for this universe <laughs> and it's going to be real bad but I assume they have um, the, the company has custodians of the lore who are like you can and can't do this or that in your books oh yeah what would be great is if these authors were like the the best nerds you know like the absolute defenders of the faith so nick kime 
he's got a salamander tattoo on his arm <laughs> and he's like sending people messages. I read your first draft and you did that salamander dirty. You need to change things. You need to make these things right. Or in my next book, let me tell you your hero. He's not going to die a hero. Let me just say that. He's going to, you know. Yeah, yeah that would be quite fun. <laughs> um, right. Let's, uh, I, I think we're maybe on chapter three after about a good, a good hour. So that's <laughs> the, good, the, good, the good news is looking at your our notes, what you've written about chapter three, we've kind of covered at least the first paragraph because it's about the remembrancers. So I think that must be when we get properly uh, introduced to them. There's a there are some cracking fight scenes where uh, a lot of a lot of meat is torn into shreds. <laughs> so we'll get to that. Um, uh, yeah. So th- this is where I I really started hating Horace. Um, he pretends to be magnanimous and says, yes, the, f- the, the the emperor who has just been killed, we must allow him an official funeral um, because, you know, we're not destroyers. We've got to respect the culture. Uh, th- of course, this is the culture that they are completely destroying yeah. and replacing with their own. So it costs him nothing to do this. And he is portraying himself as like this, this level-headed uh governor planetary governor when in fact he is just a, a bloody dictator yeah i mean it did sort of strike me as a bit weird this bit where yeah like you say the whole enterprise is kind of about wiping this out and, and you know it talks about this architect and he's kind of if i remember correctly he's sort of talking about what you say rebuilding the world with a political message you know in in these buildings it's kind of struck me as a bit weird that after that war they would and this false emperor that they've, you know, they're basically kind of trying to completely deny that this guy has any claim to authority at all. And then they go and hold this kind of official state funeral kind of thing after it. Mm. It does seem a wee bit weird. Um, you kind of, it sort of would seem to be more in fitting with uh, everything else they do. that They just kind of would wipe that away and kind of deny its existence. You know, that would be the kind of totalitarian fascist thing to do. Um, would you, you know, just the, the obliteration of, of the past essentially. And, you know, all the replacement with uh, an emperor that always was and always will be, you know, the, the true ruler. It just seemed a bit weird. But again, like everything in this book, <laughs> like everything in these books, it's probably not thought through that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, like we were just talking before we started recording is that these books are like written to order. Um, the, the, the main plot points of the Horus Heresy, as far as I know, were known before these books were written. So the, the authors are hired to get a book out by X date and they've got to hit these plot points along the way. Um, depth and subtlety are not important. Meeting the <laughs> deadline is important because Black Library just pump out book after book. The, the, like they release so many that, uh, subtlety is not <laughs> is not a, a key factor uh, in their thinking and what, what they I mean basically what they're what they can write most effectively as far as they can make out is action um, and yeah. uh, so there's a lot which they do really well they do well and it's vivid and um, and in amongst as a part of that kind of that ends up with quite you know some quite good descriptions of space and planets sorry it's not space as in outer space but the the physical space on the planets yeah. that uh, the the characters are landing on and, and where these wars are taking place, uh, all that's described quite vividly, and I really like some of the 
sort of descriptions of planets and stuff that kind of yeah that like i remember reading one of these books once and, and about the first half of the book was just all sort of uh, character plot scheming build up to the the sort of big action set piece which was a monumental battle which took up the basically the entire second half of the book and the first half of the book i was like this is pretty bad like it's really not that interesting and badly written and as soon as this battle kicked off i was like holy shit i'm transported you know like um <laughs> it was it was just vivid uh, and, and a really clear more clearly than most of the books it just struck me about that's what they're being employed to do you know they're um, these are books that are creating the fiction of a franchise of games that are war games. So it's it's yeah. the war that they're um, that people are uh, writing about. Really, there has never been a better description of alien bodies being ripped apart <laughs> by bolter rounds. Like they they are genius. That there has never been more words directed towards bodies being ripped apart torn apart shredded misted <laughs> is a good one i enjoy the misted um but yeah that's that's really where these writers earn their money and they do it really well yeah uh, we get an intro to carcassy he's uh i've got here he's a musician but is he a musician or a poet he's a poet i'm not sure if, he's a poet the, he is the one who was um casually lounging on a chaise long complaining about smelly soldiers and bad space wine. That's the kind of person he is. And Keeler, who is a photographer. And then Loken trains with Torgadin in the big gay fight scene that we mentioned earlier. Um, it's super gay. They're all, tops are off. They're all sweating. It's very good. It's very, very good. Um, but Torgadin mentions that uh, Abaddon and Horus want Loken to replace Sejanus in the Mournival. That's the, um, the sort of the top group of space marines who act as advisors to Horus. And um, that's a huge honour and Loken is giddy. Absolutely delighted. But what I thought really interesting about this bit is that um, Horus knows to ask, Horus asks for Loken by name. So he knows his name, he knows his deeds. But he also, he tells Torgadin to tell Loken that Horus asked for. So he knows very well the importance of his personal power in the Legion. He knows that his favour will uh, bind Loken to him. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, this is... Did, did we go over who, the four members of the Mournival? We covered a couple of them. Uh, we talked about um, Abaddon. He is the... Um, he's the first captain and sort of unofficial leader He's the uh, hothead, violent one. Torgadin, Tarek Torgadin, he's sort of like the Joker. Yeah. Like, uh, not not the Joker from Batman. He is a, a Joker. <laughs> and, um, well, he's my least favourite. Uh, do you have a... <laughs> like, I hate him. Uh, but I seem to be hating everyone in this. But And then there is Little Horus, Aximand. Yeah. Um, he is a bit dour, doesn't like Loken by all accounts um that's it isn't it yeah um yeah i can i can really get an impression of what um little horus was really meant to be like i think at first he's sort of yeah what he says he's a bit dour and unfriendly towards Loken, but later on they i think win, it, win each other's they, respect they, or something. they very much um sort of leave him to the side really don't they they don't really spend an awful lot of time on him yeah uh, 
it's it's Abaddon, Loken, and Torgaddon who are the main the main characters. Yeah. Um. So uh, we also get an intro to Carol Sinderman. He is a uh, the chief iterator in the Crusade. They are like a spin doctory philosopher. Um. They shape the message. They they literally say that they shape the message. So they're the propaganda, which is a I think a a kind of cool, interesting group to have on a crusade. Um, so like another group that I really want more detail for. Yeah, I think actually the they make a kind of they're a good illustration of the point I've made a couple of times about how you you definitely got it points towards a infrastructure for how. Um, planets become colonized and brought into the kind of doctrine of uh, you know the emperor, em- the empire, and uh, sorry, the imperium and and the emperor as as, as its leader. Um, but again, that's just it's kind of background, really. You know what I mean? Like the the, the focus yeah. is on these uh, Startes warriors and their kind of um, military culture, and um, more to the point, their their um, military actions when they invade planets and so on but but yeah the iterators are quite an interesting um yeah so he gives like a really great speech well great speech an important speech uh in 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 terms of understanding the the book itself he talks about uh the dangers of religion and how since you know prehistory it has kept man in bondage and um and sort of in hoc uh to the, the clerics and that it's the best thing that mankind has ever done uh, was to free itself and so it, it's saying that the empire is explicitly anti-religion but he says that man needs to believe in something and that is the mission that well that's what the iterators are for and he says that it's the mission of the crusade which is what man should believe in he says that they're the torchbearers bringing light to the darkness emancipating others from false gods and ascending to take our rightful place as the apex of sentient life so well there you go i've got here (laughs) they're basically internet atheists they're like they're so pleased with themselves they're so pleased that they've managed to you know discover the truth and get rid of uh get rid of gods that that they're so fucking proud of themselves, but that's not enough. Yeah, they 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 they, they won't wait. They won't stop until everybody else acknowledges their cleverness too. So they got to force it on everyone. It's, yeah, and like religion themes of religion are kind of such as any themes are are core to these or to this book anyway. Um, but again, just like so, the whole kind of the, the paradox of the situation is meant to be that. Like, like you've just described, you've got this sort of ultra-aggressive um, atheist uh, worldview that is meant to be at the heart of um, this culture, and they're completely opposed to anything superstitious. You know, there's no, there's no gods, no um, none of that. Any any sign of that, they, they ostensibly stamp down upon immediately. And then the two things that are kind of happening to change that in the course of the series, as we'll get on to, is... is uh, coming into contact with sort of undeniably supernatural events is one of them. But another one is the kind of <clears throat> people seeing the emperor as a god, basically. And I think, this, you know, it's it's meant to be that this is sort of something that's creeping in, but it seems to me from the very start of these novels, it's just kind of, it's a bit weird. It basically almost is like they already treat the emperor as a god, but 
Yeah, I know. I, I definitely agree, but I, I, I think that is totally on purpose. And like, whenever Loken is being uh, intro- introduced into the Mournival, they have all of these like really weird rituals and stuff, which are essentially religious. Yeah, but they don't call them that. So they, they've got all of these their own rituals. They've got their own superstitions. They just don't call them superstitions anymore. That kind of hypocrisy, I think, seems totally natural in, in that they um, they think they're so assured of their own superiority and cleverness that they're completely unable to see that they, like everybody else, have their own superstitions and uh, sort of weirdnesses and, and insecurities and all of this. They think they've completely done away with it all, but that just makes them blinder to the fact that they still have yeah i think that is that is basically the point but i also think that that is like most of the time these books are probably just fairly happy to um be you know be what they are just kind of pulp uh military fic sci-fi fiction um but uh this is one issue in which i think they sometimes think they're smarter than they actually are you know this discussion this discussion of religion but it's it's you know it's fine it's it's a it's an entertaining it's a a perfectly serviceable backdrop to the to the world i think this kind of this supposed tension i i don't know man because well the 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 point i wanted to raise about this sort of cinderman uh dialogue almost is that i i i thought this was a really interesting sort of pedagogical point is that he is using this dialectic style where he's asking his congregation these questions. He is saying, but doesn't man need more? Doesn't, you know, don't we, we, we can't just be you're wrong, we're right. Like there's a really interesting bit. He says, but is it enough to say that you're wrong and we're right and to enforce that, you know, in battle? That's kind of, uh, is, doesn't that show that we're weak? And I, I was kind of going, yeah, yeah, it super does. Um, and I was like, oh, it's interesting that there he's noticed it and that he's he's making this point. Um, but like straight away in the very next line, he says, "But the fact is, you can't deny the fact that we are right <laughs> and, and they are wrong. So we can't, you know, we can't um, we can't deny the truth." So he's he's using uh, this sort of idea of self-reflection and questioning to give everyone the idea that you you've come to this belief yourself through self self-reflection and introspection and you've come to this you know fascist idea that we're the best yourself when in fact it's just normal indoctrination it's just normal everyday indoctrination but in fact it might be even stronger indoctrination because it's it comes along with this facade of uh, of like dialectical introspection um it just seems like a, a a sort of a more interesting point than you would expect from a book like that yeah i mean i certainly think it's it's the the clearest just sort of exposition of their you know the un- underpinning logic which is basically just yeah um they are just very forcefully asserting that their truth is is the truth of the universe um and and that sort of lays it out more clearly than than elsewhere in the book. Um, I'm never sure <laughs> if it's just like sometimes you, you think is this just an interesting contradiction or is it just like half arsed 
writing, you know, like, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> one can never. Well, I mean, I suppose like that's the, the beauty of books is that we can choose which one it is. Do you know what I mean? Like in, in every other book that I read, like I'm happy enough just reading into stuff, whatever I want. I never think, is this, is this a mistake? <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that in the, in these books, there's just no answer to a question like that. So you just gotta like, you just gotta move on. No. So let's make a little bit more progress then. Chapter four, I think we're by chapter four now. This is the ritual of joining the Mournable. This is a, this is an odd one. Um, they, yeah. Uh, they bring up a, a bit about uh, people being the sons of Horus and that everyone um, who had been in the Mournival before Loken was a son of Horus and that's shared a physical resemblance with Horus and that Loken is the first to not be that way. So it just kind of gives uh, a weird idea that Horus has been giving privilege to these people that look like him it's really weird it's really like narcissistically creepy but i i thought more would be would be done with that idea just seemed to be something that was like entered into the conversation and then never dealt with just seemed to go yeah i mean i suppose i i took the implication of that to be that like obviously they um you know see horus as as beautiful very beautiful or whatever the, you know the description said <laughs> and like i just i just sort of took it that almost in, in a kind of subtle way well not in so it's not like they would say right you have to be a son of horus to get into this position but they would just sort of be naturally natural favorite yeah just naturally more favored within the not just by horus himself but by just everyone really you know would see them as it doesn't really say that they the, the people that have whose genetic inheritance from horus has made them look like him also are seen to be kind of that that's goes hand in hand with being more like him and that's why they get favored it doesn't really say like in terms of personality yeah. stuff it doesn't really say that as far as i remember but well i mean and here we come to the high point of the book the the, the reason why we are here <laughs> <laughs> um this i want to give a little history lesson this is why i read these books this single phrase i can remember back in glasgow well when we lived in the same building you give me a book to read you give me this book to read i remember taking a photo of this line and sending it to you and just going what have you given me to read what on earth is this and i honestly i mean how long ago was that that would have been like uh, seven or eight years around that, ago, coming up like on that? about uh, yeah not far off a decade ago yeah um jesus um since then, I've thought about this line every week or so. <laughs> like, it is, oh my god! Right, it's a quote. Uh, do, you, do you want to do you want to play act again? Will yeah, you? let's go. Let's go for it. Um, I'll be Abaddon, and you can be Loken. Okay. Have you got yeah. it? <clears throat> there will be other duties and obligations, special duties, escorts, ceremonies, embassies, planning meetings. Are you sanguine about that? I am sanguine. That is so stupid. <laughs> like there three words, I am sanguine. <laughs> Nobody, not a human being alive, has ever even thought about putting those three <laughs> words together. I am sanguine. Yeah. What the hell is that? I love I that. Like that. We we I think we 
I was just thinking there, we just took a break, which you guys, if we cut it out correctly, anybody hearing this won't notice. It's It was seamless. Lovely bit of editing <laughs> that. Um, but that, oh God, we were talking during that. And I was just thinking, mm, we've been fairly negative about this so far. When in fact, it's a book I like, yeah. you know, it's a, I have enjoyed it. This makes everything better. <laughs> like, this is such, <laughs> such ridiculous ridiculous theatrical dialogue i'm i i adore it um i i had it in my head because i like as we say we we read this about 10 years ago that's the last time i read it and i'd forgotten everything about this book to be honest with you but i hadn't forgotten about that line and i had thought that all of the dialogue was like that and it really isn't it's not that good uh and that's fine that's fine because you know it can't all be diamonds. Yeah. yeah, most of it's just more prosaically bad than that line, which is kind of <laughs> exactly, bad. exactly, exactly. But all of that just makes you know it, it's pearls among swine. Do you know what I mean? Like you gotta, you gotta go through all of that rubbish in order to get to such a wonderful <laughs> thing where you where two people in a conversation use the word sanguine. Impossible, <clears throat> impossible. Like. If real people, if, re- if real people even thought about doing it, it would, one of them would explode in like, uh, just in a fireball because that is more likely to happen well, it, than two people using the word sanguine in a conversation. It does kind of make you want to, you know, if someone says to you, oh, how's it going? You'd be like, oh, pretty, pretty sanguine, you know? Um. <laughs> I've thought about that. I've thought about this, using it in a conversation. And I've never had the balls to actually do it because I've always known that in whatever circumstance, you could be giving evidence in court and you said, I'm pretty sanguine. And the, the, the judge would be like, hold on a second. What what on earth are you talking about, you weirdo? I, yeah. I, I've, yeah. I've thought about using it to to my boss in a meeting, like just as he's dipping out, just as he's going out, like to, uh, I've, I've got to leave early, guys. I've got to go and meet. Yeah somebody it's very important okay well well we'll continue being sanguine (laughs) (laughs) you just go Ooh, okay i can i can put it off for five minutes i can put put off my next meeting for five minutes let's dig a little bit deeper into what the hell you just said or or, yeah you're just you're just leaving your friend at the pub you know do a fist bump keep it sanguine mate um Oh god! That I mean, we have ripped on this book, but now I'm just like, this is probably book I've ever read. It's probably it's it's probably up there. Uh, Logan's joining the Mournival. It's it's ridiculously uh, portentous and overblown with uh, ritualistic bullshit to the point that even Logan, the idiot that he is, calls it out. He says like, this is kind of religious, like this is you know, I don't want to go against the teachings of the emperor. So chapter five. Um, we've got this sort of head architect is given a speech about what he wants to do on the on the planet that um, that they've basically uh, subdued. And this is my this is my favorite chapter of the book. Right. Okay. Um, well, I'll let you uh, go ahead with it. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's he's giving this speech, and it was it was re- I thought it was really human. Like he's he's giving a really boring speech. It's really hot. Nobody wants to be there. Everyone is talking about leaving, but they're shooed in by the uh, the soldiery. They aren't allowed to leave. Um, the speakers that he's talking about are like pop, popping and cracking. Um, they're projecting his images uh, around on big screens, but they're not calibrated right for the planet. So they're like totally blown out. So it just sounds like a really bad um, 
tech keynote address. <laughs> did you did you see that thing by Randy Pitchford of Gearbox really? No, no. It just reminded me of that. He was announcing uh, Borderlands Three, and he started off like he he tried to show it on screen, but they were having problems, and it was showing at like two frames a second or something. So it was basically like a slideshow. So he said, "Okay, well we can't show that." Um, as the people in the back get that sorted out, I'll do some magic. And he starts doing magic tricks in front of this audience who just want to see Borderlands 3. And I was just like, this guy, who does this guy think he is? So he's doing sleight of hand magic and card tricks and shit. And he goes like, well, okay, I think we've got this sorted out. Let's try it again. And it doesn't work again. (laughs) And he restarts the video about five or six times. On or about the fourth or fifth time, he's like, let's just let it play through at like slideshow (laughs) pace. And it was the most cringy, awful thing. He's a he's a terrible, awful man. But um so it made it quite good. (laughs) But um that that was happening around the same time as I was reading this, and it just kind of brought that to mind. Um and that yeah, just how just how the humans weren't really that good. You know, it's like they've got all of this technology and all of this infrastructure to enforce compliance. But you can tell from this description that they aren't, they don't have the ability to change according to the planetary need. So they're doing what I imagine they've done thousands of times before. But this planet is too hot and nobody can stand it. Um, it's not right for the type of technology and the speakers and the screens that they use. So nobody's getting any of that. And it just seemed like a really, a really cool scene of kind of human ineptitude because you get, you know, it's a common thing with, um, with fascist societies is that because they're so scary, we portray them as like supermen. It's, you see it in like video games and films with Nazis all the time. Like the Nazis are basically a race of um, unstoppable lunatics that get defeated kind of by luck in some ways, but they are, you know, they're, they're a machine for killing. Um, here we get an example that that's not really, the, it, it's, it's kind of haphazard and sort of amateurish. And I just really liked the fact that it was just so cobbled, badly planned. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. But this this like this is a more subtle scene than many, and and kind of it's allowing one of the you know a high status figure in this society is kind of um, or in this this crusade, you know, in in this force that basically moves around in this massive ship. And um, but this is one of the not one of the military. Uh, people this is an architect and um they're just he's just giving a speech that people were finding quite boring basically and yeah um yeah. i thought that was quite uh yeah like that was just a bit more like you say human a bit more relatable so um one of the people watching the uh the the speech is carcassy the poet that we met earlier and he's he's super bored and he slips away and goes into the city where basically the defeated populace live and work. And it is, um, I think it's really, really good, but it is infuriating. Like, I got pretty angry. And it's quite touching. Um, There are piles of belongings everywhere, um, as if, like, people are ready to leave the city, but they don't yet have the means to be able to cart their stuff out. Uh, And all the walls are covered in graffiti calling for 
revolt and revenge and resistance to the imperial forces. And again, it's just like, yeah, that's totally, that's totally right. That's totally how these things go. So at, at this point, I was, uh, I was like, holy shit, this is going places. I really like it. And then Carcassy, the prick that he is, he starts smiling because for the first time in a long time, he feels the muse rise in him. Like he's looking at all of this human pain and he is like, oh, I can get a poem out of this. So he he doesn't see these people as people. He is like that kind of British colonialist, you know, g- going to um, Imperial Africa. Do you know what I mean? And just um, feeling like he owns the place. He gets lost and goes to uh, a bar and starts drinking. Uh, he remarks on how everyone looks so human, which is a crazy thing because they are literally human. But it's, um, it's just an interesting point that... <coughs> Um, they are people, but he does not see them as people. You know what I mean? It's uh, whatever. Basically, in this scene, he's just he's just basically just the arsehole drunk tourist, isn't he? Just like shouting at people to give him booze in in the hope that they'll understand him. Uh, he's he's an English tourist in like a Greek or Spanish pub, just embarrassing the whole nation. <laughs> and uh, yeah, no, I, I, you're right about the the way that he treats these like sort of heartfelt pleas that he's written on the walls. Is basically, just that he finds some good material for his his writing. Yeah, yeah. but anyway, he he uh, buys a bottle of booze um, and starts walking amongst the city again, and he finds a church um, where we learn about uh, and. I'm a little bit... Oh, I'm going to have to say this out loud. It's bad. He learns about... Um, or he starts talking about the cult that exists within the Imperium that who, of, of people who think that the Emperor is literally a... And it's called... And I'm sorry <laughs> to have to say this out loud. It's called the Lectitio Divinitatis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I took a bullet there, William. You're going to have to say that. Yeah, um... Oh, God. It's dreadful. Uh, the the chapter ends on a real down note. I didn't understand this bit at all. But as um, he gets more and more drunk, he finds this group of uh, imperial soldiers and starts talking about how the empire won't last forever and that the emperor is just a man and will die. And basically, the soldiers are like, "Mate, we're soldiers. What the hell are you talking? Don't you don't say this to soldiers." And he's like, "Oh no, everything that begins will end." And basically, they kick him to death. Which <laughs> what happens? He, I thought he, I, I thought he was dead at this scene, but it turns yeah, out that he's not. He's not. So presumably, but they say the line is something like, uh, "By the end of the beating, he wasn't breathing or something, something like, like that." Yeah. So presumably, they restored him or something. But it it was it was a bit of weird writing where it's just like the the guy's dead, and I'm delighted about that fact. Uh, and but he does appear later on at one of his orgies. <laughs> Uh, and so, the, yeah, that was quite a shock to find him back. So, chapter six, uh, we've got here that this is the first meeting of the Murnaval with Horus and some others. And you've noted here that this includes down. <laughs> I, re- I remember noticing at the time, I was like, <laughs> you say this, this is just so. It's just like. It's, just, it's like the Boulevard of Broken Dreams. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, have a, they have an avenue on the. They have a big hallway, like. like a big monumentally sized space on the ship uh, known as the Avenue of Glory and Lament. <laughs> <laughs> that is... <laughs> my, my description for that 
is word salad <laughs> bullshit. Oh. No, it's just it's exactly a description of what it is. I mean, it's just not what something would be called. It's just like it's so on the nose. It's, it's an avenue where their glories and their sadnesses are recounted, and it's like. You know, I don't know. Just do better than that. Something more memorable. I mean, it is memorable because <laughs> it's it's bad. But like, uh, it's that to me is like a, a phrase that a fourteen-year-old unhappy English student would write on the front of their exercise book and think it's <laughs> it, it it's you know deep and uh, and meaningful or something. It's it's a goth phrase. Yeah, it's a- and it's embarrassing. No, it's a story. It might be like, yeah, a short story that uh, they wrote for, you know, for part of their coursework. And it's just like <laughs> basically saying, you know, in life, we move from moments of glory to moments of lament, you know. And that would be the entire theme that was discussed. And, and anyway, I, I'd, I'd like to think that this uh, fictional goth student would have um, illustrated that story as well, perhaps with some ravens. <laughs> I actually wrote a story about ravens when I was at school. So. <laughs> oh, it was basically, no, what was it about? Anyway, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked, but it was basically inspired by um, Edgar Allan Poe, and it was... Oh, my God. I mean, that sounds like you tried to, to pass off the raven as your own. <laughs> Is that- no, I'm, trying, I'm trying to remember what my take on it was. Anyway... The wider point that I suppose we're trying to make here is that we, we make... We make <laughs> I wasn't trying to make a point. I just want to think about my younger self when I was 14 we, and just kind of laugh at me. We make these criticisms from a position of empathy is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> this, this fictional student is me. I did this. <laughs> I did this, although it wouldn't have been a short story. It may have been a deep lyric. It may, it may have been um, some words to the song that I would write when I learned to play an instrument and formed a band, which I would definitely, definitely do, but which I didn't, of course. But. Um, right, so where the hell are we? Um, oh, yeah, Tor- Torgadon uh, sort of says to Woken, like, Horus is very much depicted as being this kind of all-knowing... Uh, sort of master of conversation and manipulation, making things go the way that he wants to go, and he kind of uses his Murnaval as what's the word, like a foil to, to himself when he's having discussions. But and, and this is one of the well, probably the main reason that I hate Horace <laughs> is that he he is a he's got blood on his hands. He is a ghastly, horrible creature of war, but he wants to play the peacemaker and play the man of the people and makes his mournival say like yo we'll go and invade these people and we'll kill every one of them and horace knows that they're going to say that and he'll be like oh no easy there easy there we can't be we can't be seen to be uh, invaders all the time and then the mournival goes no but it's the best thing to do and he'll be like oh okay okay kill everyone okay go yeah there's it. like there's a few or at least a couple of occasions I'm doing that in the book. And I, I did wonder whether that's meant to, but again, probably reading too much into it, whether is that meant to be like, is that meant to be pointing to an aspect of Horace's personality that was, um, you know, left him open to someone who is willing to sort of manipulate and corrupt people. Is that kind of pointing to his future yeah. role as a leader of chaos? I don't know. But anyway. Well, you know, I think, no, I think, 
I think that is definitely a, a point. I don't think that's reading too much into it at all. I've I wrote down because at the same time as reading this, I was reading uh, the Psychopath Test by John Ronson. Mm. I don't know if you. Uh, I have seen him talk. I've not read the book, but I've seen him talk about it. Um, yeah. So basically, he talks about there being um, certain number of sort of medically diagnosable aspects to psychopath, and some of them that I wrote down that. I think totally relate and you can see clear as day in Horace is uh, he's got a superficial charm which he does and he like really likes to think of himself as a charming person um, he's got a grandiose view of self worth he's cunning and manipulative he's got a shallow emotional ring and callous so all of these things like apply to him I'm not saying the author was like oh he's a psychopath but he has all of these um all of these bad traits, basically, that um, make it that mean that he is the one that is sus most susceptible to corruption by chaos. They, this isn't a spoiler, but that's the point of the books. Back to the story. Let's get let's get through some. We meet a few more people. We meet somebody called Malagurst the Twisted. That's a good name. Uh, he's the chief propagandist space marine. Um, he is basically described in terms of being quite an ugly person um and everything around him is dark he's he's up to no good basically and um his dark soul is um sort of reflected in his twisted ugly appearance and it's it's such a hackney metaphor that you know the um the internal is the same as the external but that is that is throughout these books anything that is evil basically turns into a monster. But, but do you know, like, do you know what, now that I think about it, right, this is, I suppose this is a bit contrary to what you're saying earlier on, if about the sort of, you're speculating whether Horace is painted as a psychopath, but you've got these guys like Horace and Malgar, the twisted, right? Um, and they're kind of like, you know, they're given all these characteristics that are, you know, his name is the twisted. He talks about how how he's like a real schemer kind of thing, isn't it? And like how he, yeah. he's, you know, he's does the sort of political side of it. But this is like the, all the kind of mechanics of being a, a bad guy are kind of there. But at the moment, you're just sort of, it's just kind of asserted that these are good people and that, you know, well, good from the point of view of Woken, I mean, like, you know, from the point of view of yeah. the, uh, someone following his, uh, the, the Space Marine chapter. Um, but, and then, like later on, they sort of—I remember thinking this the first time I read these books—that they just, just you're just—they basically have these same qualities, but you're told that they're good, and then at a later point, they are bad. And it's like I just didn't feel there was like a very convincing portrayal of a sort of descent into evil. Yeah, no, I, I, I um, absolutely agree. When they fall, I remember thinking at the time. I don't really know what it was about it because it was so long ago, but I remember thinking. I don't buy this. Like, I, I don't buy that you would go from this one state to this very evil, demonic state, which is what happens. I don't buy that transition. Yeah, Wait, but what I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, it, And it seems to be, rather than, like, an actual arc of character progression, it's like these sort of qualities that are bad are there already, but they're just presented as being fine because they're for the pursuit of, again, what one of his fellow... Astartes sees as being good and then it's just like there's a, a, a switch flips later on and then they're, they're just evil yeah. anyway we'll get to that stuff it's 
it's unearned. Uh, and we finish off this this chapter by meeting. Uh, I think think it's the first time we meet a new legion. Um, where we meet the Imperial Fists. That's a name, the Imperial Fists. Um, Rugaldorn is their Primarch, and we meet Sigismund, their first captain. Those are all silly <laughs> names. There is uh, bickering, and I can't quite remember an awful lot of, of this conversation, but we learn that um, that there are a bunch of legions and Primarchs who are very unhappy that Horus has been raised to War Master, and that there is sort of that that the the Primarchs and the Imperium of Man is not a uniform thing. There are rivalries. There is pettiness and shallowness and real hefty disagreement. I think that's basically about it. I mean, they, they bring that up again. That's an interesting point. More of that, please. I guess I, I think there is more of that in future books. And then some of the remembrancers are taken to uh, the flight deck where um, the the Luna Wolves are mustering in order to crush the last residual sort of forms of resistance on the planet yeah they're all taking their oaths of moment which which are like um they're like what are they they're sort of oaths <clears throat> where people they swear to kill a lot of people essentially yeah they, they're not going to turn up turn back they always move forward and kill so this them. is this is chapter seven isn't it yeah they yeah. it's the, they're described as so they have like general oaths to their prime arc and to the emperor, but the oaths of moment are described as very specific oaths relating to a particular mission. So it's like saying, you know, they will take an oath to capture a particular city or whatever. Um, that's basically what they are. And then they kind of seem to collect these oaths. They like pin these oaths to their armor, and then kind of like I think it describes Loken as having a collection of his old oaths in his in his room, basically. Um, yeah, we should we should probably say that. Uh, space marines in battle armor um they have like huge metal ar- suits of armor basically and the oaths are bits of parchment which they oh god uh which they attach via wax to their like shoulders or their hips or whatever i'm not sure which it paints a fairly awful scene of like of of these monstrous soldiers covered in uh like hand scribed steampunky bullshit you know i i don't like steampunk i'll i'll go on the um i'll, I'll put it out here for all time I, I i find it i find it i don't um, like steampunk either i didn't really i don't i don't know a whole i've not really read steam any steampunk but i didn't know this to be like a steampunk thing but i actually no no it, it it's it's not really a steampunky thing but it's that kind of old meets new thing do you know what i mean like it's steampunk is um future tech but using old technology yeah right okay yeah future uses of tech using older technology i mean i think like i quite like just because i've been doing like i'm do history research and i've been writing stuff recently about looking at uh, documents and writing in their kind of non-literate context if you if if you think of things like just in the middle ages someone um posting a document somewhere that people can't necessarily or, or, or showing a document to people that can't necessarily read it but they still take they see this document as a kind of physical um representation of you know rights to land or whatever and i kind of just because mm-hmm. i'm quite interested in stuff like that at the moment i i kind of this is kind of like that you know that people aren't going to read the the words of the oaths but they see them pinned to the space screen so mm-hmm. it's like 
writing actions an object you know a kind of symbol or something it's quite interesting but well i mean uh, during this scene um as the remembrancers look on they say the astartes do love their rituals <laughs> so i guess i guess that's it you know i guess it's um it's ritualistic and also um a visual representation of their of their beliefs and of their um connections to one another i mean they would just um they would just fall off wouldn't they or just <laughs> but not, not only that but they're like you know, invariably in the average battle, they will tear some being from limb to limb with some sort of hand-to-hand combat weapon. And, uh, you know, you feel like these oaths are going to get sort of uh, pretty dirty, covered in... <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's... that Wouldn't that be... That'd be so frustrating. <laughs> uh, oh, I've just killed you and you've dirtied my oath at the moment. I just want to kill your friend. Um think that's what it is like the astartes are just sort of fueled by frustration at getting muddy <laughs> yeah, um so this is see i quite like this is the, the element of the book that that i think is the best aspects of it sort of kicks in around this point because yeah like you said the the point of this what they're taking their oaths of moment to do here is um crush they sort of had reports there's a last pocket of resistance on the, the planet where they had earlier killed the false emperor um, we're saying there's there's some elements that the local population are still resisting them and Woken, not long after he's become part of the Mournville basically volunteers his chapter to uh, go and sort this out basically and sort of just deal with it quickly um, and on their way to the on their way down to the planet to carry out this mission, um, they start hearing, they start again this radio interference, basically, that starts talking about somebody called Samus um, and sort of saying sinister things about Samus. Um, and I quite like this sort of, I quite like this sense of like creeping evil that comes in from this point. It's um, it's it's hardy horror film. Yes, fare, exactly. You know? it's, a, it's a whispering deal. Yes. And I like that. I think it's done quite well and it's quite enjoyable. So the, they are hearing this over their radio headsets and stuff and it is it's kind of it is kind of creepy. Um so they they get down to the planet and start killing everyone. Uh it's a pretty easy battle. It's a good it, I I think it's a really good description of a one-sided battle. Um the they kill everyone. They don't lose a single person and it's real bloody. But they're 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 still kind of surprised at the level of resistance that they're facing because it's really easy for them, but yet still people are kind of throwing themselves into the the paths of their guns. Well, yeah, they're trying to kind of illustrate. Well, this bit kind of illustrates how powerful the Astartes are supposed to be in warfare because um, they've been called in because the the normal soldiers that fight for the Imperium have been struggling to take this last area of resistance and i think it describes when they when Loken and, and his his uh, start is um go into this battle they there's loads of dead bodies from the, the normal soldiers that have tried to do this so they they kill thousands they take the fortress that they are assaulting they discover pagan altars and this upsets them it's you know religion and they start destroying them as they find them, and they destroy loads. Uh, but that just kind of tells them that the reason why the defenders were so fervent and so sort of keen to throw themselves into battle and die is because this is the last remnants of their religion. This is their their sort of faithful place. 
I think we learn uh, later on that um, when Cinderman and uh, Keeler, I think, are talking uh, on the planet, uh, he basically says he's done a bit of research about Samus and he's found out that it is their chief demon. It's their... The, Samus is the devil, basically. And uh, this seems to be a shrine to that demon or in some way related to it. And Loken is called to this deepest cave within the fortress um, because it is a huge pagan shrine. And he goes down and he finds one of his warriors, Jubal, uh, who's staring into the waterfall. And he won't listen to orders. He's raving. He's seeing words in the water. And he starts reading them out. And he's upset that Loken can't see them and, you know, isn't, you know, isn't as shocked and delighted as he is. And Loken asks Jabal, like, where his company is. Jabal says uh, they couldn't see the words in the waterfall either. And so he had to get rid of them. And so he's just like, Loken is like, huh? Is that, what does that mean? So he orders one of his men to take him into custody. Um, and Jabal does not like that at all. And so shoots him in the face. It was really, it's really brutal how easily that guy dies. He just shoots him in the face and he falls to the ground like a sack of stupid bricks. This is described quite lengthily as like Loken cannot believe what has just happened. It's brother against brother. It's, you know, the, the breaking of fraternal bonds that had been thought impossible. There is a line earlier on in the book where it's something like um, the empire will only fall when brother kills brother. And now that, that's kind of like a joke because you should never fear the impossible. But that's just happening right here and it goes it's kind of long-winded but kind of effective in explaining his his disbelief at what watching yeah which is and how important because that's basically the crux of this whole series is meant to be isn't it that this is the first time that you know a start is killed a start is and that was how shock you know how shocking that was to the woken is sort of underlined here and uh, then it kind of cuts to um cuts back to before this mission doesn't it? And um, yeah, Woken is talking to Mercedes, Mercedes, the um, one of the remembrancers. I actually quite enjoyed this. In the course of this conversation, he gets into recounting previous kind of wars and missions that he'd been on, and I felt like there was quite a lot of imagination packed into quite a. Yeah, yeah. They they, they mention two, in particular, two races that he was part of wiping out that i it w just seems so imaginative and i think it's a really interesting thing that happens in these books or when when they describe other races because in bad sci-fi books other races seem like humans but with <laughs> insect heads do you know what i mean like the, the 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 culture isn't in any way different apart from a human culture but in 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 these ones we have um, an insect race that hates war so much that battle is only allowed in like very small predefined areas. And so the Space Marines, not caring about this, just came down and killed them all outside of those areas and they didn't fight. And then there's the robotic race that are kind of like ancestors of a human race um, that spend their entire existence in the maintenance of, of mosaics, which is like a beautiful idea. Like, I, I want to know everything about that. I think that's so interesting. Um, and then the, the, the last one, which messes with Loken 
a great deal is that there is a dead planet that used to have uh, some form of society on and they go down and invest and they find this huge 3D map of Earth and this is a planet far off in the galaxy and they don't know who made it, how or why, what it meant, any of that. All And all of those questions are unanswerable. There was nothing that gave them, um, you know, any... They couldn't penetrate any of those questions. Um, and I think that, like, you and me, who have some form of uh, historical background, me, a background you are still doing, um, I think we would find that fascinating and really, really exciting. Yeah, I thought that, I thought that was kind of cool, that, but actually, yeah, just, like, I quite, I quite yeah. like that, like, you know, this sort of thing that, you know... Is in I suppose it's a sci-fi trope and it pops up quite a bit in this book about you know people you know human colonies or whatever that have left the Earth behind thousands of years ago. How do they develop and yeah. what sort of links do they still have in terms of knowledge and culture or whatever to the Earth itself? And that was kind of a cool one. Yeah. Um, well, we could. I mean, l- later on in the book, which I think we'll have to get to in the second, the Interrex have a really fascinating idea where they've added an element to speech they've added a musical element oh yeah that's cool to to sort of give um uh, a sort of you have the meaning of the words but you also have a more amorphous feel to a conversation that's given by the music it's just it's a brilliant idea and i love it um but that thing the 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 questions that are brought up by the the 3d map of earth um that would make you and me really interested and really excited. Uh, Loken says he's never been more scared in his life <laughs> by that. Um, which, I mean, first of all, Loken, you're so boring, mate. Like, <laughs> like I would, I, I sort of cut ties with any chance of ever caring about that dude. Uh, but, but also, it's probably, it's probably quite telling that these are unanswerable questions to him, and that's what you know. That that's what makes him scared he'll he'll run into any battle with um some uh, cat-headed monster that's fine but uh having unknown questions um let anything less than um full knowledge and full belief frightens anything it's really (laughs) sorry that just reminds me of a a a quote uh from later on in the book um (laughs) just this sort of pride in in ignorance he was proud that he didn't even begin to understand how Xenos minds worked. Xenos <laughs> <laughs> uh, being the word for aliens. Xenos uh... Z- is, yes, is a, a wonderful <laughs> other word <laughs> that we should add to our glossary. <laughs> um, but anyway, sorry, that's a bit of an aside. Uh... So back on the surface, back to um, Loken and Jubal. Uh, Loken is aghast and Jubal basically kills everyone um and he stabs loken in the shoulder i think and gets in close and starts telling him all about samus um but that just allows loken to eviscerate him (laughs) he just he just cuts his guts out so that leaves loken alone in the cave and he's just like oh what is this this is terrible at which point cinderman is walking the battlefield um, and for the first time, he sees the the terrible reality of Crusade. He just sees broken bodies everywhere, blood everywhere, and he, he's clearly like uh, deeply upset by it. But he is the propagandist, and he has got he's basically got to deal with it. And he's taken to Loken in the cave, and Loken tells him exactly what's happened. And Cinderman tries to explain it away, like it's a plague or something, you know. 
there is plague on this planet. Obviously, something got into him, affected his physiology in a different way that we couldn't have expected, and he went mad and lost it. Now, that is where a book might leave it. They'd leave that point to breathe and develop and might sort of build on it a little bit. Not these books. Immediately, Jabal reanimates. <laughs> and basically, he, he turns into a big rotting meat wolf monster, essentially. That's what he turns into. And I've got a quote here, uh, which I think uh, when these books really succeed, when they like get into the, the meaty horror of battle, like it's real body horror, everything's wet. Do you know what I mean? Like everything's just really gross. Um, and as Jubal reanimates and turns into this monster, they say, His tongue flopped out of his rotting mouth, long and serpentine. Shreds of meat and gobbets of pus sprayed in oh, all geez. directions. <laughs> uh, gobbets of pus. That is disgusting. But yeah, th- th- this is where it's good. I read that and I was just like, oh, this is great. This is uh, That's a good line. Big fan. So this whole incident... Um is something that they basically, once it's sort of the immediate situation gets resolved, Loken's obviously deeply shocked about all this um, based on his understanding that uh, space marines should never, are sort of pro- programmed almost never to be able to fight each other. Um, the, the, you didn't mention how they killed it, but I think that's because the book... Oh yeah, it doesn't, yeah, no, it's weird. It's just sort of Loken destroyed it. And one of the remembrancers saw this happening as well, and a bunch of them got killed. They'd kind of sneaked away from where they were meant to be allowed, where they were allowed to go under a sort of embedded uh, trip with this military expedition, um, and, and they see some of this horror, and some of them get killed by the monster. Um, and one of them, the photographer, Euphrates Keeler, she uh, gets some photographs of this thing, and Loken just kills it before it gets to her. So Loken's all kind of shocked at this, but they... He, they basically kind of cover this up, don't they? They, they say that a yeah. few people... Yeah, like he, he, he and Abaddon get together and say they come up with a plan to cover it up because you, you can't have the knowledge of uh, Space Marine. They can't have that idea. Yeah, and then he Horus talks with Loken about it and he starts explaining about the uh, this is something to do with the warp. And the warp, as Loken has understood it up to this point, is basically the means by which they travel through space is you kind of enter the warp, which allows you to move much more quickly through space, and then you come out of the warp. So it's like a Star Trek sort of warp drive thing. Um, but the the warp is like a, a physical place that you exist in Yeah. as you travel. Yeah, so it's kind of going to another dimension, and that allows them to move much more quickly through space. And um, that's basically how Loken has understood it to that point. But Horus now tells him there's lots of um, strange forces in the warp that have to be, uh, that can kind of, breakthrough and seem to have done so in the case of what was going on on he says demons demons, yeah so this is pretty shocking for Woken because this kind of sounds like sounds a bit like spirits and stuff like that which is which is you know the the imperium teaches is all made up and you know it's had a sort of ultra secular philosophy that they have um it's yeah he says he says it's it's elemented it's elemental but not directed yeah so it's it's not the result of the action of a witch or of a demon. Um, it's it just is. So use the term demon, but know that it's we use it not in the religious context. Use the word magic, but know that it is 
like a primal force that we see as magic, but has its own reality, has its own explanation. And this is, and Horus then kind of reveals that that's the reason the, the Emperor has gone back, uh, has left the Crusade and gone back to Terra to carry out research, essentially, and try to learn more about the warp. He also says, and this is crazy, he also says that the warp has the ability to transmute bodies, and that is how demons come from the warp into reality, and that it has taken Astartes in the past before. All right, I can remember. Yeah, at which point you're just like, why is why is this a secret? I still don't understand that. Uh, presumably, uh, it's because whoever made the decision not to tell anyone, whether it be the Emperor or the Primarchs, they don't trust humanity enough to keep to their ultra-secular beliefs. And if they see these demons in the warp, then they will know that what they've been told is a... T- yeah. I, I, that's the only reason I can say it, but like, I, I, it, it's an unsatisfying explanation. I don't get why this was left. Yeah, so it kind of seems like they're trying to... What they're going for is that like they could be open about these things and explain them to people, but people wouldn't be able to handle that information in a sort of non-religious way, and they're better off just trying to, to make sure that people don't know about it as much as possible. Basically, it seems to be what they're going for, but yeah. I mean, it kind of feeds into something that uh, we're getting towards the end of the first part um, here, so we'll maybe have to look at it in the next part. But there's something that I sort of thought about was that I'm unsure of humanity's timeline before this, and I kind of get the impression that they are at a stage of technological development that they are unready. Do you know what I mean? Like, the Emperor came along, united Terra... Um, gave them space travel, gave them space marines, and sent them out into the galaxy again. Yeah. Um, and it just feels like they're completely unprepared. Uh, and or maybe you know the emperor is so powerful that he can't quite see the weaknesses and feelings of humanity as a whole and himself in not being able to empathize with with them because he's so far above them do you know what i mean yeah in terms of like the timeline yeah i, I find that like quite interesting the sort of the, the bits of the book that point back towards that and as, i mean i'm sure you know i'm certain there are people who actually know this stuff but as far as i can make out from this book it's like this is it's not an alternative reality it is it is in the future of earth it's set effectively isn't it and like since yeah. our time there's been, I think, some sort of apocalypse and then humanity's kind of built itself back up into different groups or nations or whatever and then the Emperor has um, united all of them. But there's... uh, Yeah, I see what you mean. So it's like, it's just a kind of continuation of the Empire, the Emperor's conquest on Earth into space without a a thought-through idea. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, it's just that um, mankind would not be where they are without the Emperor. They wouldn't be anywhere near where they are without the Emperor. So they haven't developed any kind of uh, cultural structures or systems that that will enable them to uh, meet new species or meet new experiences in space uh, and deal with them reasonably. Yeah, because it it kind of emphasises that relationship of like the, the space marines being children, you know, to the to the emperor and like yeah like you say rather than them being sort of developed themselves it's like it's the emperor's great knowledge you know that people are beginning to see as godlike because it's that sort of separate from everything else 
and and yeah, that's yeah. that's pushed the civilization on somehow that he's been able to reach. Yeah, beyond which they're really ready yeah. for, and uh, especially in the second part of the book, you see that in particular in their dealings with the Interfex, Interfex, Interrex, that they basically there is a chance, there is a chance at something good, and they fuck it up by their their stupidity and prejudices. Which, if they'd had a bit of you know, just a, a a bit more of natural experience, they probably could have dealt with better. Like the 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 uh, the interrex basically laugh at them because they are they're capable of warp travel, but they know absolutely nothing about the warp, and they they're, they they basically like laugh at them and are just like, oh my god, you don't know, oh my god, and it's really embarrassing. I thought that was I, I yeah, I thought that was quite good. That bit where like it turns out the interrex. Basically, they knew more. They know more about the warp and chaos than than most of the space marines do. And they had taken. They basically thought that they might be chaos because they seemed to be so like warlike and belligerent. And you know, they had like a yeah. war master and all that. I thought that was kind of cool. And then actually, at this point, Horus is kind of he does he, like some of his uh, some of his captains are sort of. Um, arguing for making war sorry we're getting way ahead of ourselves here but um yeah no, they're arguing for making war on this civilization and he's kind of trying to approach them peacefully um, and i think there's it's a chaos element that causes that to really break down but they yeah because of the sort of suspicions they have and some of them just think they should be destroying this civilization basically straight off the bat and it just sort of descends into all out violence pretty quick that is the end of chapter 10 luckily enough that is the end of um part one of the book it is split into i think three parts but the third part is basically nothing so i think we will tackle uh part two and part three in the second episode of horse heretics i think that's a good place to leave it there yep, don't you yep, leave it there and uh okay so um normally in a podcast uh we would tell you to you know get involved contact us through various means but we don't have any of these means yet <laughs> we haven't even set up a twitter account um maybe we will maybe we won't but un- <laughs> until then think of something to say to us and and like refine it you know don't give us any don't don't give us any badly thought through misspelled bullshit <laughs> just think about it yeah <laughs> anyway uh, thanks for listening 